Hello, Mike. Hello, Julian. So, what are we doing tonight? We're going to meet a man called Spider. Oh, we're going to deep delve into drugs. We're going to find the right drugs for the right bugs. Let's get our guests in because tonight we've got from the Bella Moss Foundation, Jill Moss and Chris Lawrence. Hi, I'm Mike Brampton. And my name is Julian Hope. Welcome to Veterinary Ramblings. Jill, Chris, hi. Hello, how are you? Hello. Good, thank you. Excellent. It's great to have you on tonight. Absolutely brilliant. Jill, you're the founder of the Bella Moss Foundation. And Chris, you are now uh, working in, in what capacity for the Bella Moss Foundation? I'm the treasurer. The treasurer. Uh, but you have been, before that, in, in many incarnations, uh, involved with the Animal Welfare uh, Federation? Foundation. Foundation, Foundation. sorry. And the, uh, and the RSPCA? Yeah, still am. AWF is BVA's charity. That's the British Veterinary Association, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I'm a trustee of the uh, RSPCA local branch and chair of their Southwest Regional Board. Oh, right, right. The RSPCA for our American listeners is the Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. Jill, I think we should get on with the nitty-gritty stuff. Uh, and I think we're all bursting to know um, Annie. <laughs> um, you don't want me to break into song now, do you? I do, I do. Yeah, yep. yeah. The sun will come out tomorrow. So you go, no, we won't do that. That will frighten all your listeners off. Annie was one of the shows I did as a child actress. Whilst I was Annie, I was dating the young boy that was Oliver. Oh, <laughs> was that Mark Lester? Or, um... No, not in the film, in the show in the West End. Uh, no, I, you, no, I can't remember his name. No, I remember his... I, I do remember it. I've forgotten it. I've forgotten it momentarily. I do remember because I was offered that role as well. Really? Uh, so, so there we go. In another incarnation, you may have been dating me. Goodness me. Uh, so you, you've also appeared in all sorts of things then, haven't you? Like, all sorts of things. <laughs> the, sound, the Sound of Music? The Sound of Music. Um, I was a, a child actress, so much of the work that I did was between the age of 12 and 16. Right. And then I looked very young at 16. So what people would do is employ me because it saved them having to pay for chaperones for children that really were young. Um, and I could take um, many of the parts then of playing younger parts. And I did that till I was about 20, 21, really. Wow. That's a, it's a brutal world then, isn't it? You were you were putting a lot of younger children out of work. I was. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was 25 playing 12. Yeah, but it was it was very good um, at that point. But I think that there comes a point in every artist's life where you have to question, as a child, it doesn't matter. But as an adult, how many auditions do I really want to be going for? Um, and do I want to spend my whole life being rejected? <laughs> yes, yes. And, and uh, having the uncertainty of... Yeah. Working or not working. Mm. Yeah, that's right. I think I was fortunate that I was busy as a child actor at the right time. And I did things like Grange Hill, Tucker's Luck. You know, I did a lot of things where children, as an actor, it's a great opportunity because you get to mm. learn the older actors that you're working with. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. And of course, some of them are now the older actors themselves, aren't they? Yes, a lot of them. A lot of them are. Um, and uh, I, I think that people are still working. I had the greatest pleasure to work with people like Judy Dench. Um, and she was so kind to me. And Glenda Jackson. Um, and I learned. I learned more from working with them than I ever did at drama school. Yeah. yeah. You're actually putting that theory a bit into practice, aren't you? And, uh... so, so, Chris, your acting background. Now, what, what, were you, what did you star in as a child? Uh, I did the lights because I was absolutely rubbish as an actor. So I did the stage lights. I was, I was known at school as Spider because I, you know, I'd climb up in the bits at the top, dangling the lights. And Your childhood nickname is Spider then? Mm. <laughs> yeah. There are worse nicknames to have. I was, I was long and gangly. <laughs> what a cool nickname. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, that's great. Chris. So is, is that where you f- first realised you wanted to become a vet? <laughs> uh, 
No, but before that, actually, I started when I was, I must have been about 10 or 11, I suppose. We lived in rural Sussex. We had a goat. A goat being the goat uh, ate something it shouldn't. And the vet came along and did this, that, and the other to Tansy the goat. Yes. Uh, and she got better. I thought, that's, that's a nice job. I'll do that. Went to the careers master and said, I want to be a vet. And they said, no, he's so stupid. You'll never make the grade. <laughs> <laughs> And was that a, a red rag to the bulls? Absolutely, you? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I scraped into vet school and scraped through vet school and came out the other end, and I've survived all the way since. <laughs> and, and survived a, a, a tremendously good career. Well, I've so. had it, I, actually. I've had a great time because uh, I changed in the middle, and I think you know I'd, I'd done. I'd spent thirty years in practice, and and I've had enough of practice. I wanted to do anything except be in practice, frankly, by that stage. <laughs> and so I went to work for the for the RSPCA as their assistant chief vet. And um, mm -hmm. Jim Phillips, who was the chief vet, then sadly died of cancer six months later. And so I got parachuted in and it just rejuvenated me. I went from being, oh, God, I've got to go to work today to, oh, good, I've got to go to work today. Uh, and because I was living away from home while I was working both there and Dogs Trust, living away from home during the week, it, it meant I could I worked long days, and I never minded going and doing something in the evening because it was that or watch television, and you know which is the better <laughs> option. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Unless there's a, a a reviewing of Annie or Oliver, there's nothing to see, is there? So yeah, absolutely. Well, do you know, I I retuned my television last night, and there are a hundred television channels. Uh, who watches? Yeah. Well, I, I, I haven't actually got a television. Really? I, I am I am that person in Sussex. We are that family. <laughs> um we have we have a computer and so we, we stream things when we want to, but otherwise it gets folded up and stuck away in the cupboard and we um uh, we talk. Yeah. Or That's play YouTube puzzle. Yeah. That's really good. That's really nice. Yeah, I, I, television's great for the news and, you know, the odd programmes, the sort of David Attenborough's and Country File and those sort of things, but I can't be bothered. <laughs> I'd rather read a book. I'm reading or, Barack or, Obama at the moment is far more educational. Oh, yeah. <laughs> or you could listen to a podcast, of course. Yes, very good of ones. course. Good ones around. <laughs> there are, there yeah. are some very good ones, and there's one in particular that springs to my mind, which goes out across <laughs> on Spotify, iTunes, and... Uh, also available on YouTube and Facebook, called Veterinary Ramblings. Yes, I think actually, Chris, you've got a point there. There's not very much of interest on television, but there is so much, so much you can learn by podcasts and, you know, webinars on the internet, and I'd much rather be educated. I think, you know, entertaining for an hour or two maybe, but not, not all the time. It gets a little bit repetitive on the TV. And in the days when I was working in television, it was the good old days where if they showed the programme you were in, you got paid again. But that doesn't happen anymore. <laughs> oh, really? No royalties anymore? No. <laughs> no, no. There's things like buyouts. So the last audition I went for for a commercial, usually you do a commercial and then you'd be paid every time the commercial was shown. Mm. And they say, do you want this job? Yes. In that case, sign this piece of paper and that's a one-off deal. <laughs> wow. Uh. It's a bit harsh. Very mm. harsh, isn't it? It is. It is, yeah. yeah I remember my, my sister and I auditioned for Cadbury's Chocolate Animals uh, as an advert. My sister got the, the, the part and I didn't. Um, but that was she, when you wanted to become a vet, wasn't it? That's when I wanted to become a vet, absolutely. <laughs> I thought, well, it's chocolate. look at these chocolate animals. They're so lifelike. <laughs> Other chocolate animals are available, but uh, clearly not as, not as good. Um, but the, the the problem I have at the moment with with television and with um, live media like that is is the media bias, uh, and we're seeing it hugely with um, well with everything, but, but particularly with um, uh, with all things medical. Particularly, I'm, I'm not going to mention the the pandemic because we we mention that pretty much every other week. Mm. But the one thing that that we hear all the time is how bad vets and doctors are with things like uh antibiotic use and and that's actually not biased is it jill that that's correct i think vets well, and doctors i wouldn't say that i wouldn't 
say it's correct that everybody's not good with it, but one of the things that I find by talking to the general public, and it's interesting this, people will call me and say, my dog's got an eye infection. I don't really want to spend the money going to the vet, but there's something in my cupboard my doctor gave me about a year ago. Do you think I can use that? I think it's the lack of understanding about the use of antibiotics as far as some of the general public goes. But I think we've worked really hard, Chris, haven't we, over the years? And I think the veterinary profession have really taken this on board. But what's really important is that if the vets are being prudent about the use, you need the owners to be on board as well and not demand an antibiotic when it's not necessary. So a lot of the work we do is is encouraging that kind of compliance, really. Can we just ask you how it all started? We, we, we've sort of hopped into the middle here. Right? Oh, my goodness. I mentioned you had a vested interest. So can you, you know, tell us a bit about the Bella Bloss Foundation? the long version or the short version? <laughs> Whichever you prefer. It's It started because I had a beautiful dog called Bella, and she was my, my soulmate, you know, a single woman who's not married, doesn't have children. You tend to have a slightly different relationship with your pets than maybe if you've got lots of kids and the, the dog's just in the background. So she was really very important to me. And she contracted an MRSA infection in during cruciate ligament surgery after chasing a squirrel. Now, what I found out later was that it unfortunately, more than likely, um, and I won't say any more, came from the, the post-operative procedure or the operation or post-operatively. And it was very difficult because at the time, the vets didn't know anything about it. Neither did I, for that matter. I wasn't looking for an MRSA infection. The wound wasn't healing. Um, they were treating her in all sorts of ways, but not at the time wearing gloves or masks. And I didn't know anything about it, but she became very ill and it became systemic. And I took her to Davis specialists who were wonderful. And I can't tell you how wonderful they were. Uh, and what they said to me was, you know, this could have been prevented. And if we got her earlier, it could have been treated. Unfortunately, given her age and an underlying condition, there's not much more we can do now. They probably did give her about three weeks longer than she she could have had. So she came home with a view to reconstructing the leg should she get better. But unfortunately, she took a turn for the worse and I had to go back to my local vets at the time. And this was the problem. The duty, the nurse on duty had a child who was very ill and was terrified of coming into contact with the infection. And she was on duty alone at the veterinary practice. I didn't know what to do, but I had a friend who was a vet that I brought in and they let me stay with Bella for a couple of nights, but locked in the consult room. I could only go to the toilet and back to the consult room. Well, Bella became very ill. She had pulmonary edema and she was going into organ failure. So the vet that was on holiday at the time, I called him and he said he'd come back. And unfortunately, by the time he got back, it was too late. And I lost her and I lost her to something that could have been prevented with better hygiene and with early detection. But that wasn't just that. I had a cut in my foot at the time. And because I was in the consult room with her walking around, it was summer. I was walking around in bare feet. I didn't know any different. This bacteria had got into my system. And a month later, I visited my GP with pus coming out of my foot. This is after Bella died. And I was really ill. And the the GP went out the room and came back in wearing an apron, gown and a mask. And I said, oh, my goodness, I've got MRSA, haven't I? He said, looks like it. Yeah, but we'll take some cultures to be sure. And it came back as the same strain that Bella had because the bacteriology reports proved that. So I I didn't know what to do. I thought, you know, I, I researched. I researched MRSA in pets. Is there such a thing? This was a human strain. How did it come about? I phoned up people like Professor David Lloyd at the Royal Veterinary College. I phoned uh, uh, Dr. Tim Knuckle and I spoke to a lot of people and I said, I don't understand how this has happened. At the same time, Claire Rayner was retiring from working to improve infection control in human health care. We met up and she became the patron of a little website that I started called Pets and MRSA. But she became quite, you know, unwell and couldn't really continue. So I was at Crofts one day walking around with my pet's MRSA leaflet, wondering what to do about this thing that I found out about that I thought people should know about. And I bumped into someone called Mr. Chris Lawrence. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, We got chatting. And I'd done a lot of media interviews at the time. I'd been talking about my story in the television and radio and the papers. And I got the attention of a lot of people, but I wasn't really doing anything productive. And Chris sat me down 
Um, well, you can say what you said, really, Chris, if you can remember. It's going back. Yeah, I, I, I can vividly. <laughs> um, it, it was essentially it was: don't be negative, be positive. Don't go around blaming vets and the system. Tell people what to do mm. so that it doesn't happen. Do the education, talk to vets, talk about antimicrobial resistance, hygiene, all of those other things. Make yourself into an education charity, not a charity that's just trying to go out and slag people off because they're all not doing it right. Mm-hmm. That's where it went, really. And I think I said, can you help me? <laughs> yeah, probably. I, 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 I have this congenital inability to say no when somebody says that. <laughs> Absolutely useless. Oh, well, well and, I'll ask you a question about that later then, Chris, because you know, times are quite tight you know, with COVID and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> Uh, some things I can say no to, Mike. What came came from a tragic experience for me was the catalyst to start something positive like the Bellamos Foundation. And Bellamos Foundation wouldn't exist today had it not have been for my meeting with Chris and the way that we approached the whole topic and started to collaborate with uh, government agencies, with other, you know, with veterinary institutes and, and people teaching like the RVC and, and all the other veterinary schools and bringing on people that give up their time, I've got to say freely, to help us and our clinical board of advisors all give up their time freely and everybody that helps us, nobody gets paid. So without that kind of support and collaboration, the charity really wouldn't exist. It's an amazing story. And, and firstly, obviously, sorry to hear about about Bella, it's still awful feeling that that um, that this was a problem that, in different circumstances, could have been yeah. firstly avoided, uh, yeah. and secondly picked up and treated. Mm. Yes, it could and, have been treated, but unfortunately, at the time we're talking about two thousand and four. Mm. Very little was known about MRSA or any other resistant bacteria t- spreading between humans and animals. Um, the veterinary profession were not, they didn't have it on their radar. Uh, pet owners and general public didn't know anything about it. So in a way, what I tried to do was take her memory and, and build it into something like we're doing, educating and helping people and animals in the future. Yeah, and it's a very poignant lesson, I think. Uh, and, and how wonderful that, that you, uh, between you, the two of you, turn that negative into a positive, because it would have been so easy to just retain that anger and uh, as you say, slag off uh, the, the, the vet who, who missed it, vets generally for, for not being aware of it. Um, and I think it's fair to say that you met with a bit of resentment, didn't you, from the profession oh, when you started oh, off? I was treated at first <laughs> as a loose cannon. And you know that old saying, keep your enemies close? I think everyone was inviting me into mm. the fold because they were a little bit scared of what I was capable of. I had a media background, high profile Mm. friends in the media. You know, I could call up certain journalists and say, can I come on ITN tonight and talk? People Mm. were scared of me. Um, And so I decided that the best way forward, rather than waving a twig at a tank, was to say, can we all work together? Can we all sit down? And we did, because at the time, DEFRA started a committee on MRSA and animals, and um, I was the only lay person on that committee. It was made up of mainly, you know, human and animal health professionals and institutions. And I think as we sat down, we began to talk about doing conferences and academic research would come out and we, we would publish that and get together and have annual scientific conferences. And it grew and it grew and it grew. Um, and, and I look back and I think, it could have gone one way or another. I could have become an angry person, just, you know, a voice in, in the wilderness. Mm. But this way, look what we've managed to achieve with the help and collaboration. And I'm going to say of the of the BBA and the BSAVA and the BVNA and DEFRA and NOAA, um, and I'm hoping I can't miss out on anybody else, but all, all of the people that have helped and supported us, we've all worked together. And that's that's what it's all about at the end of the day. Yeah. And it's a tremendous job that you, you've done. But back back when it happened, 2004, 2003, 2004, um, of course, we, we knew, everyone knew the existence of, of MRSA. And um, and I think it's fair to say that, that, that us vets were feeling rather smug, thinking, you know, thank goodness we haven't got that in uh, in our pets yet. Here, yeah. 
just, just give us another jolt of penicillin, would you? Because I'm probably absolutely safe. <laughs> uh, and so it was. It yeah, I was going to say that was it, really. You know, people, yeah. it wasn't on their radar and prudent use of antimicrobials and even simple infection control, biosecurity, wasn't being talked about mm. as much as it is now. It was still fairly new. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and you mentioned the doctor going in as we're going out and coming in with uh, protective gear on. Uh, yeah. Again, that's a sea change, really, isn't it, in terms of uh, how wounds uh, are treated. Uh, I, I you know, hold my hands up uh, before reading about Bella. Uh, I don't think I ever treated a cat abscess with gloves on. It was almost a, a sign of weakness as a vet. You, know, you don't wear gloves. Pretty good in your hands, dirty. Yeah, Chris, you've you've talked about that in the past. Yeah. I mean, we fought with that, didn't we? We fought at the beginning to try to get people to think about infection control, um, and and you know it was a battle about changing culture, changing perceptions. But somehow, it, it where would you say we turned a corner? I mean, it was probably around two thousand and nine when we began to work in the One Health Forum and we did the One Health Conference and we looked at human and, and, and animal health and, and the transmission of diseases that can go between zoonosis, between humans and animals, that's when it turned a corner, I think. Yeah, and I think there, there were national things picking up, wasn't there? There was the O'Neill report and, and yeah. formation of, of rumour yeah, and all of those things. But it's, you know, I mean, back, back when I, I left practice in 1998, um, and uh, even then, I I was not giving routine post-operative antibiotics. There are still people doing that now. Give it a dose of, of you know amoxicillin in LA uh, when you spay you bitch, and, and you know yeah. you just you just despair. And I, you know, if I knew better in 1998, and I'm not the fastest learner, you know, so you'd think by 2021 the profession would generally have tweaked that, that things like that are not on. Can um, can, can we enlist the the support here to deal with um, analgesia by any chance and post-operative analgesia? Well, I I think I mean the, the difference with that, Mike, is is that. Uh, a product was licensed and pushed hard, and there was there was such a strong commercial driver behind that. Not an animal welfare driver. Animal welfare driver was the was the beneficiary, obviously. Right. But it was a huge commercial push. Was it uh, really? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Tell tell us more about that, Chris. Um, do you know, I can't remember what the what the first. Can you remember, Julian, what the, the first drug was? It was, was it Zen, uh, Zenocarp? Or um, before that, there was Finidine, wasn't there, that came yeah, out? It was after Finidine, because Finidine yeah. had the, 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 the potential um, side effects. But, yes. it, it, so, it, but, but the, the um, Carprofen one came out, I think it was Zenocarp, the first yeah, one. No, it was the injectable uh, analgesics, you know, the yes. reasonably long-acting, the, the non-steroidals, basically. Yeah. Um, once the injectables of those came out and they started pushing them um, and, and making the case that actually for welfare, uh, you should be giving post-operative analgesia. And oh, by the way, it was good for animal welfare as well. Um, you know, that's, that, was, that was the push. Where, where um, are they today? Well, I, 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 does anybody castrate a cat now without giving post-operative analgesia? Yep. Yeah, I guess they probably do. Um, Sadly, some do, yeah. I yeah. Was in, I, before lockdown, I was in a case um, where the bitch spay received beautiful um, level of analgesia right through from uh, pre-op um, all the way through and post. And the castrate would be sent home with non-steroidals if he needed them. Mm. Sadly, the last time I had a bitch spayed, which was B, 15, 16 years ago, I had to go and ask for post-op metacam. Yeah. And, and the difference was she was sent home without it. Yeah. Um, I, I, my wife picked her up rather than, than me. Mm -hmm. um, and probably being me, I'd been away working during the week. I came home on the Friday night and said, why, why is Maggie licking at her, her stitches? Mm -hmm. um, you know, what, what's she having? She's not having anything. So I was in the practice on Saturday morning saying, I want some Metacam. Put her on Metacam within 12 hours, she'd stop licking. Yeah. Yeah. 
Now, when I first qualified, so that was in 96, um, I think we gave out Buster collars, you know, those, those big yeah. um, uh, plastic collars that stop them. make them look like lamp, uh, lampshades. Yeah. Yeah. We gave those out for pretty much every op. And um, I realised a few years back that, that we hardly ever had them. They were getting dusty in the in the cupboard. And the oh. big change was our routine use of of, of uh, analgesia. And usually um, uh, we're using polypharmacy. We're using um, uh, multiple types of, of analgesia to, to block every part of the cascade that we can. Uh, now, infection is a big part of pain control. And so if we can keep wounds aseptic, then we don't get many of the, the irritations in those mm -hmm. wounds that, that then lead to, to self-trauma yep. uh, and often then lead to secondary infection. So analgesia is all tied in really with uh, uh, with, with MRSA control, with antibiotic control. Yeah. Um, I, I would say, actually, we've seen a lot less MRSA over the past five or six years. And, and it's been more MRSP um, and uh, other resistant infections. But, I mean, I can't remember. We get a lot of inquiries, well, all the time. But MRSA seems to be fading into the background. Would you agree, Chris? Yeah, I, I, even, I think the whole scene is moving on now that this last year has has raised the profile of, of hygiene and prevention mm. way, way above what it was ever going to be in any other way. The challenge now is to keep it on the front papers. Yeah. Yes. Because, God forbid, we don't have a third wave, but you know, as it gradually drifts away, the focus will go. You're not going to get the first five pages on coronavirus in the newspapers as you do. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's it's going to be something on page 14, you know, a one-inch paragraph. Um, mm. and I, I mean, I, I did a RSM, Royal Society Medicine webinar with um, uh, Chris Whitty the other day, Chief mm. Medical Officer. Yes. Um, yeah. And he was saying that that actually have to put all these things in perspective. I think he said three years ago, 25,000 people died of flu, mm -hmm. but but it never got in the papers, although the data was released and everybody knew it was happening. It was just flu and it was just a bad year for flu. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so it, there's, there's so much perspective in all of this and how you relate one thing to another. But and say I keep keeping it in the in the front of mind, keeping hygiene, biosecurity, all that stuff yeah. in people's minds is, is, is going to be difficult. I think. Particularly for the general public, because now the questions that I'm getting are about transfer of, of COVID between humans and animals. And we've updated the website. We've got all the information written by Dr. Tim Knuckle on that. Um, but people are scared. Should, you know, questions are, should I let somebody touch or stroke my dog in the park? Should I let, you know, mm. relatives touch my cat or dog? There's a lot of fear around it. And, and what we say to people is that, you know, basic sensible hand hygiene and infection control is important because we know from past experience that basic good hand hygiene prevents the spread of so many things um including the common cold and flu so yes we've been banging on about hand hygiene for 10 years and everyone thought it was the most boring topic <laughs> now it seems that we were a little bit ahead of our time in that way but mm -hmm. you know our challenge now going forward as a charity coming out of um this terrible time that we've had is like chris is saying to reinforce infection control and hand hygiene and prudent use of antimicrobials and encourage people to think about being, you know, well-being, well-being for people and for pets, and how we can all play our part in preventing the spread of any kind of disease with the things we know we can do. Yeah, yeah, I think you're absolutely right, and and um, you you talk about responsible use of antimicrobials, and that's key to it because we are not only are we getting these uh, awful uh, bugs so-called superbugs that, 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 that can't be treated by conventional antibiotics. But we're, we're also losing uh, a lot of our routine antibiotics mm. to, to other perhaps less super-resistant uh, bacteria. Uh, and, and some of those antibiotics will, will, be, will be lost uh, forever, or at least for, for several generations until whatever imparted that resistance hopefully has been lost. I was trying to look about 
uh, earlier about um, how antibiotics have, have helped us because clearly you know they, they have saved lives mm. so I, I googled how many lives have antibiotics saved and, and obviously that, that's impossible to calculate uh, but in the in the second world war uh, it was thought that because antibiotics came out just just at the end of the second world war it was thought they probably saved somewhere in the region of 200,000 lives uh, the the, uh, the 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 paper i read was quick to to add allied lives because obviously they were the only ones that mattered at the time um, multiplying that up, uh, there are estimates of, of somewhere between uh, 30 and 130 million people whose lives have been saved with antibiotics since then. Now, it would be awful to think that going forward, 130 million lives will be lost because we were careless with antibiotics at this stage. And I think Chris, you mentioned putting things in perspective and the number of people dying of, uh, of influenza as opposed to the number of people dying of, of coronavirus. And obviously, they're not equable because uh, coronavirus is an emerging virus and, and we need to, to therefore tr try and get on top and control it. But if, if we get some sort of relativity on those figures, the number of lives that could be lost because we've been careless with antibiotics and most importantly, Jill, as you say, because proper hand hygiene and general wound hygiene isn't being adhered to. It mm -hmm. could be in the order of hundreds of millions of people over the next 40 or 50 years, which is just, just dreadful, isn't it? But it's not just lives lost. It's it's the ones that end up crippled or, you know, amputated limbs or whatever else. I mean, I think um, I, I, one of the things I do in, in Oxford Cathedral, there's a book of, of remembrance for soldiers killed in war. Mm -hmm. And every other first Saturday of the month, we read five names from the first war, five from the second as a, as a little service. Um, and if you look at the date of death, as opposed to the date they were wounded, some of these guys took two years to die. Right. Yeah. It, yeah. You know, and, and most of those would be dying of things like gangrene, um, you know, virtually all of them secondary infections from, from, yes. from wounds. Yeah. And they would have been in dreadful pain for, for the entirety yeah. of those two years. You hear of them having sequential amputations. And, yeah. yeah, but they're the ones that died. Then, yeah. then they're all the ones that recovered as well. And you think of the suffering there, both animals and humans, if, mm. if you didn't have effective antibiotics. Yeah. And I think, you know, partly, I mean, there's all this stuff about, about the critical uh, antibiotics and all the rest of that. Um, to a certain extent, we're our own worst enemies because we have the cascade, um, you know, and the cascade sometimes points you towards using an antibiotic that actually may be convenient, but is not necessarily the one that you should be using. Sure. And so, sorry, Chris, can I, can I just ask you, obviously, a lot of the people who are listening to this podcast mm. won't know what the cascade is. So... Uh, can you yeah. right, sort of. 50. Okay, well, essentially, the cascade says that you, if you're going to use a drug, any drug, you have to use it in the species for which it was intended, for the use for which it was intended, and that if there isn't an appropriate dog, a, a, appropriate antibiotic for the right species, but the same use in a different species, you can use that, or for a different uses in the same species. Um, so it. it because of the licensing rules, it forces you to use some antibiotics that actually you might prefer not to use because there is another less critical alternative, but it's not licensed for that that species for that use. At one stage, I can't. I think cat abscesses were uh, uh, something silly like amoxicillin was was not licensed for cat abscesses. If I remember yeah. years and years ago, yeah, absolutely. We 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 used to um, have to use it off license and just hope that we were. <laughs> yeah, we're okay with it. Uh, although a lot of cat abscesses, of course, don't need antibiotics. No, I, 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 there's there's a lot of discussion about that. Cat abscesses are, are not all the same. An awful lot of cat abscesses are, are actually largely cellulitis, um, and there is nothing to lance. Uh, and, and, and my experience and practice, actually, I think more of them are cellulitis than they are abscesses. So there isn't something that you can slice open and let all the pus out because there is nowhere for it to, to come out of. 
Um, so I, I don't think it's quite as simple as it's made out to be by some no. of the experts. I think you know practitioners would would beg to differ with somebody who works at the university may not see quite as many cat abscesses as a practitioner does. <laughs> well, that's because the practitioners are dealing with all of them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And there's very little more satisfying than popping a, a, a blade into an abscess and just watching it there's, there's a lot, there's a lot you of really you... need to watch more television yeah, <laughs> watch TV and, and come off those youtube videos julia <laughs> yeah. there's far too many of that you know, we, we've just we've touched on this we've discussed it tonight as well you know we've, we've been talking about one health we've been talking about antibiotics we've been talking about um bella moss foundation we've had covid come into the whole mix now what do you see as the challenges for, for bella moss moving forwards it's a good question because we have a meeting on Saturday to discuss that very topic. <laughs> Could I table the motion that you discuss what, what's for Bella Moss moving forwards, please? Well, the exciting thing about Bella Moss moving forward is it isn't just Chris and I, um, because you yeah. know, m- most mostly you can't do it with just two people. We brought on a new board, a management board, we've got our clinical advisors, we've brought on some very dynamic new people, mm-hmm. and we're having a meeting on, on Saturday. Because I think we are broadening out now. It is more about One Health. It is more about preventing the spread of diseases between humans and animals. It started off much more about resistant bacteria. It started off as pets and MRSA. Look how it's grown and grown and grown. And now more than ever, I think the time is right. We are a unique charity. Um, We do not do anything else for education. And we address really education for pet owners and for the veterinary profession and for human health professionals so we've got a lot of work ahead of us we're going to be updating our infection control guidelines this summer for veterinary practices Mm -hmm. continuing webinar and online cpd and infection control we've got the self-audit app which we're promoting and re-promoting but more importantly because i think the vet profession know more or less what they're doing our work is cut out the general public because general public, and I talk about pet owners, rescue centres, um, animal shelters, groomers, breeders, anyone dealing with animals needs to be more aware about infection control. More now than ever. Right. Yeah, yeah. And, and um, across species, yes, we're going to say, and, and the risk of transferring those from uh, from the owner to the pet and, and, and back kind. again. And, but, but without... Yeah without scaremongering, without evoking panic, because that's not what we're about. You know, we're about general education and responsible uh, pet care and ownership and and compliance and working with your vet. You know, the last thing we want, I mean, I'm, I'm flooded by phone calls about COVID at the moment. And I have to say to people all the time, you know, you, you need to take this, put this into perspective because many pet owners actually ring me up and say, my animal has an infection. Um, do I need to clean continuously around my house? How much disinfectant do I need? Should I take the curtains down? What about behind the radiators? <laughs> you know, they get a little bit panicked about the whole mm. thing. Um, mm. So our role in going forward in the future is to explain these things to the general public in a way that is manageable and and, and helps to alleviate some of the fear. I wonder if we could help you with that. Oh, yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> Julian's just sort of tipped me a wink there, and um, we, we've got a section on on veterinary ramblings called sixty seconds CPD. Hmm. So, so Jill, would you be prepared then to give us sixty seconds uh, of CPD on what a client should expect uh, when they go to the vet as Absolutely. as uh, as regards antibiotics? Yeah, let's go for it. Fantastic. Okay, let me get the clock ready then. So let's we've got the clock ready. So this is this is Jill Moss from the Bella Moss Foundation talking about antimicrobials, antibiotics, what to expect when you go to the vet with your pet. Take it away, Jill. So we know that animals that are healthy and not susceptible to becoming ill, we want to keep them that way. So what we suggest is if your animal does become ill, go to the vet. But make sure that you get the right drug for the right bugs. So cultures are really important and you can find out what bacteria is present. Don't demand antibiotics if they're not necessary. If your vet says no, then listen to your vet. If your vet does prescribe antibiotics, make sure you take 
the whole course and don't finish it halfway through. Antibiotics need to be completed. But at the end of the day, you want to get the right drug for the right bug and keep your animals healthy by not over-prescribing antibiotics and not asking for them when they're not necessary. We've got great questions. Question time. So what you're talking there, Jill, is about uh, compliance and concordance, aren't you? So clients need to, to know that, that if they're given a course of antibiotics, they need to be able to give it to their pet and they need to be able to give it to their pet for the entire length of the course. Yes. We're out. That was fantastic. There was 60 go. seconds. That was done brilliant. <laughs> Thank you so much. That was that was 60 seconds of CPD with, with question times. Wow. Brilliant. And that's Thank the first you. time we've ever had question time in the 60 second CPD as well. It is. That's, that's amazing. Oh, but right. actually, it does, it does highlight a problem, doesn't it? Because quite often clients uh, will will come to me and say, uh, the ear infection's back. And I'll say, yeah. you know, what, what ear infection? But the, the one he had three years ago, yes. <laughs> okay, well, we, we need to get a culture. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, I did give someone a little pink antibiotics that you gave him last time. Is that a few left? Yes, I hear this a lot. I hear it. I'm on the phone a lot with owners, uh, more or less dragging things out of the cupboard that have been there for a few years and not necessarily prescribed for their actual pet. It's a little Absolutely. bit of worry. Yeah, mm, it is. It, but sometimes you, you drill down and say, you know, what? why didn't you finish the course? And actually the reason is usually uh, either it, it got better, so I thought it didn't need it. Mm-hmm. Even though you, in your mind you think, well, I think I drummed in that they should finish it even if it gets better. Yeah, yeah. But also the ones I have some sympathy for are it was so difficult to give it that in the oh. end I just couldn't bear to give it that, for the entire That is course. a real problem. There is yeah. that. There is an issue. I mean, you know, every every pet is different. Every species is different. You're not always going to get the antibiotic in easily. But, mm. you know, that I think the owners have to understand that somehow or another, unless the animal is so ill and not eating, then, then it's very difficult. Uh, you know, this is where um, international cat care have come in with their easy-to-give stuff as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. Because, you know, I, cats are a nightmare to dose, aren't they? Um, mm. All cats are a nightmare to dose. Um, and and so things that are palatable make life much easier. But you, you talk about finishing courses. Interesting, the, 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 the guidelines have changed a bit on that, haven't they, over the years? It's now give as long as is necessary rather than necessarily a complete course. It, it is, and the length of courses have changed as oh, well. To do that 60 seconds again then. No. Because <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, no, you, you you did because you said give the the the, the course that the yeah. vet has yeah. told you. Yeah. So yeah. The, the vet is then uh, responsible for saying that there are ten antibiotic tablets here, which is a five day course. If, however, you feel mm-hmm. that the 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 pet is well enough at the end of three days, bring it back. Yeah, we'll have a look and we'll discuss together. That's why transparency is so important. Um, And I think the relationship that you build up between a client and a a vet is very important. If you've got that open communication, then Mm. that's the best best you can have for a pet's health at the end of the day. It it is. It is. And I'm afraid cost ruins that sometimes. Uh, And I say that as a a commercial vet. Um, Cost does ruin it sometimes because... We want the pets to get better, and, and the only way to be sure of that is to have the client coming back in. But they know full well that we're mm-hmm. going to charge them, and yeah. um, there's there's got to be, I think, some leniency there in the veterinary profession to say, well, okay, we need to get your cat better or your dog better. We need to see it, and we can't be charging you for absolutely everything. And I'm going to get in trouble with my employers for saying that, but. Yeah, well, you've got two different kinds of owners, though, haven't you? You've got the kind of owner that probably treats their animal like a child substitute, like I do. And then you've Mm. got another type of owner that may be saying, you know, money is a real issue. But also money is an issue because people Mm. aren't working at the moment. People have lost jobs. And, you know, you're going to cut back where you can. And you might be tempted to do something that you wouldn't normally do in order to cut back on the finances that could compromise your animal's health. And, And that's a real worry. Yeah. I, I, I think we should have more um, all-encompassing all charges. So yeah. we'll say, look, yeah. provided everything goes well, this this treatment is going to be X amount of, of, of money uh, for which there will be uh, 
two or maybe three consults involved. Yeah. And my so, dentist you know, you when, when I go into my dentist and on the wall is a clear structure of what you can expect for exactly how much and uh, where it might get a bit more expensive. But, it, you know, it's there on the wall just to let you know in advance of any treatment. Yeah. Yeah, I think the the whole issue of um, of charging and welfare and use of antibiotics and so on is, is an extraordinarily complex issue, mm. isn't it? Because mm. um, you know we've we we the veterinary profession, um, and I'm not very popular for saying this, but we've gone down a line where we have to dot every i and cross every t in terms of diagnosis. Yeah. Um, you know, and and um i'm in the association of charity vets for obvious reasons um and you know what gets pushed in in acv is very much the pragmatic view you know you don't need to to do every single test in the book to prove a diagnosis if you've got a presumptive diagnosis and it's reasonable then treat the animal Mm. um, and and save the client quite a lot of money you look at how pdsa and rspca treat animals the animals still get better. Um, there isn't a welfare issue there, but actually you look at how they do it and the cost of doing it, and it's significantly different from what you're getting, you know, what's called a gold standard practice. I, I hate that term gold standard so because I. instantly clients think, oh, so I'm doing the wrong thing for my pet there. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think as, as long as you've you paid particular attention to, to the welfare needs, then you can have a clear and transparent discussion with the client to say, what, mm. what do you want? These are the options. This is how I prefer to treat it. I'll be honest, this is how I prefer to treat it. But there are other ways of treating it. And let, let's look at all those and, and we'll, we'll yeah. see what we can do. Yeah, and pre-anesthetic blood tests and all of that sort of stuff, that, you know, where the evidence for it actually having a benefit is very poor. Um, yeah. And actually, you'd be probably far better spending the money you spent on the pre-anesthetic blood test, putting the animal on drip for two or three hours afterwards. Um, yes. And boosting the analgesia. Yep. Yeah. 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 No, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Jill, I, I really want to ask you here, because mm-hmm. you're obviously a passionate, you're very passionate about what you do, and I fully understand yes. that. And you're, you're obviously a passionate um, pet owner. Yes, I, I, I've just rescued a dog, actually. So, yeah, I'm probably passionate. I, I, I hesitate to use the word because I don't think it, you, you will never actually be able to do this. I don't think we ever are able to do this. Mm-hmm. So I was going to ask you whether you had, but I'm going to use the word, replaced Bella. Oh, my goodness. I replaced Bella. Um, of course, I had a rescued lab who sadly I lost last June. Right. Very suddenly to kidney disease. And um, now I've got a rescued, I don't know what. <laughs> it's a 10-year-old dog that was going to be euthanized um, because uh, nobody wanted her. She's a real mix of everything. Uh, you know, I think if you can give an animal love and a home, uh, you know, that's that's my feeling. I'm Unfortunately, I never got married. It's sad. It's very sad that I never got married and I never had children. But I suppose, you know, my passion in life is animal welfare and, and helping animals as much as possible. Yeah, that's brilliant. So, so is there, you, you've talked about a lot of stuff and a lot of the work that you've been doing here, both of you, on, on the Bellamoss Foundation. And um, when, when this airs, I'm sure a lot of people are going to be very interested. Is there, is there a central hub or somewhere where people can, can go to get involved, to get information? It's the Bellamoss Foundation um, and, and it's uh, www.thebellamossfoundation.com. Um, and it's it's a, a much better website, and there's a vet section separate to the general public section. Right. And if you are a vet and you want to go there and take a look at our infection control guidelines, and we do have an app that you can download, and the download is all there and easily accessible. There is no charge for anything. Um, Chris, would you like to just mention something about the self-audit app here? Because it's your passion as well. Yeah, practices need to be able to assess how effectively they're doing. Mm-hmm. So the app allows you to go room by room and answer questions uh, in each room that are relevant to that room. And it then gives you a score at the end of the day so that you then you can do the thing routinely so that you can check that your hygiene, your biosecurity is up to speed and kept up to speed. Excellent. Right. And, that, and that would be useful for the RCBS practice standards, wouldn't it? Sorry for interrupting you. Well, yes. Words, words out of my mouth. I was just about to say, and actually, if you want 
to 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 prove your biosecurity for practice standards, then uh, you you simply keep the downloads, and it can show you the, the the progress from where you were to where you've got to, and that you're maintaining it. It was designed by Pam Mosdale, who's one of our advisors, mm. who was a, a long time at RCVS Practice Standards Scheme, um, and also Dr. Tim Knuckle, and the late Louise O'Dwyer, and I need to get this in. We had a wonderful, wonderful person. Louise yeah. O'Dwyer helped us with our infection control guidelines and our audit app, and sadly we lost her about a year ago, but she was a wonderful, wonderful valued member of the Balamos Foundation. Oh. Very, very sadly missed, mm. uh, Louise. Yeah, the, the resources on your website, I have to say, uh, are amazing. Um, there are posters to download, there are charts to download, and standard operating procedures from the practice point of view. Which are all going to be updated later this year. Okay, mm-hmm. that's excellent. I bet. So when you, if you go through the infection control app and you, you go through and you say you can download, do you get a certificate at the end? Um, not so much a certificate, but actually, practice standard scheme have recommended our audit app as a resource. Um, and um, it would be very hard to issue certificates, but I do think it's very popular because we know lots of people are doing it, um, and people are going back in to redo it uh, as well. And I think the idea of that is what you can do is is have um, a, a meeting with all of your staff and discuss what you're doing um, and keep repeating it and, and keep that communication going, which is probably better than a certificate at the end of the day. No, it's not. We've got a certificate. Well, the certificate's very good. I've got one here. Yeah, certificates are great. We, we've got a certificate. We've received lots of CPD tonight that yeah. you can present to the RCVS to go down as your part of your CPD log. What's oh, tonight? Well, What's tonight? So, so here we go. Well, tonight, this, this is a very special one. It says more than the usual CPD. This certifies that the Bella Moss Foundation <laughs> graced our show with their presence and taught us loads, so pay attention. <laughs> and, it, Love it. and it signed Mike and Julian, me and him. Amazing. And, and there's, um, so what do we have? We have a, a cat bite abscess there. That's the good old-fashioned style that you've lanced. Uh, and there's a bit of blood there in the shape of a heart. It just, oh. it landed. It landed oh. on the table that way, so I took a picture of it. <laughs> That's um, amazing. There, there are some poppies, lest we forget. Lest we oh. forget how useful antibiotics were. Uh, there, there is a, a, a post-operative wound infection, not not, uh, not one of mine, but one that I saw. Uh, and, and clearly, on, on this occasion, uh, aseptic technique had not been carried out. In fact, this was a dog bite that had been sutured closed, uh, something one should never do. Uh, and that, of course, is is some Burke. Oh, it was me actually wearing PPE, uh, which is is what we all That's should be doing. Amazing! I love that. I absolutely love that. And, and this this is great. This is um, a, a nereid worm. Uh, no, it's not. It's a, a sea slug uh, yeah. called a called a sea dragon. Uh, a very very rare and unusual one. And really, I put this in just to just to highlight that actually. A lot of the cases that we're seeing that we've spoken about tonight, the MRSA and uh, MRSP and things, mm. are very unusual cases. Let's keep them that way. Let's keep them very, very unusual. Because what we don't want to do is to say, oh, yeah, I've seen hundreds of those. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I just want to say, finally, that everyone that gives up their time for the foundation, does it out of a, a goodwill um, and a good heart. Um, so if you do find our resources useful, um, do donate if you can, or perhaps have a fundraising day for us at your practice. That would be another lovely thing to do. But um, it, the money will go into education. Nobody gets any money, not even me. Chris <laughs> 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 won't even let me have a penny for anything. But that's what we do. We, we put all of our energy into free education. That's, that's fantastic. Yeah. Unfortunately, unfortunately, that's sort of, well, yeah. it, it's unfortunate at this moment because it, it brings us around to that time of the show, not where we say goodbye, but yeah. where Julian gets to tell a joke. <laughs> I'm sorry. Is it, it going to be a bug joke? Well, it, we'll find it's out. Not, it's not going to be a bug joke. I was going to do a bug joke, but unfortunately, all the bug jokes I had uh, are, are X-rated, so I couldn't... 
couldn't think. How do you get an expression book? <laughs> Believe me, we have them. <laughs> However, uh, we're we're recording this on the fourteenth of April. It's going to go out in, in a lot later than that. It goes it takes about eight or so weeks to come out. But on the fifteenth of April, nineteen eighty-four, we lost, uh, to my mind, one of uh, one of Britain's greatest comedians. That was Tommy Cooper. Oh yeah. And so, I, so I've got a Tommy Cooper joke that uh, that I love. I mean, they're all silly, aren't they? Uh, I was saying, I was saying, Tommy Cooper. Uh, but this is about um, a pools winner who thinks I won the pools. That's fantastic! I won the I won the pools. I'm gonna I'm gonna buy a car. So he goes into this car showroom and says, "I won the pools. I want to buy a car." And the man says, "Okay, well here we go. This is this is a uh, Jaguar, uh, and uh, this is so the the prices are uh, are equivalent to, to 1984 prices. This 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 is top of the range eight thousand pounds. Is all." Well, I, I didn't, I didn't win that much. He said, Did, "Didn't you know? No, I, I won a bit less." He said, "Well, okay, uh, I've got a Triumph Herald here. This is five hundred. No, no, I didn't win that much." He said, "Well, I've got a bike here, motorbike, two hundred and fifty. No, I, I didn't win that much, I'm afraid." Well, I've got a, I've got a push bike here. It's fifty pounds. No, I, I, I didn't win that much. He said, "Well, what did you win?" He said, "I won ten pounds." He said, "Well, we've got a we've got a, one of the old children's toys, the hoop and the stick. So, Tanner, do you want that?" He said, "Yeah, I have that. It's great, great." So he, he gets this little hoop and the stick and starts beating the, the hoop with the stick and gets a good old pace up. And he, he he's, he's walking for hours with this thing. Gets into the country, feeling a bit tired and thirsty. He stops by a country pub and he leaves his hoop and stick outside and goes in and has a drink. Ah, a little while later, he comes out feeling quite replete, and, and his stick's been stolen. And he goes back and he says to the barman, "My, my stick's been stolen." He said, "Sorry, my stick on a hoop and stick, and the stick's been stolen." So I'm sorry, you know, nothing can do about it. But uh, yeah, I'm sure you can replace it. I don't think it doesn't look very expensive. So I said, I'm not worried about the expense, but how am I going to get home? <laughs> <laughs> Just, just like that. <laughs> just like that. <laughs> oh my goodness! Well, yeah, I, I, I my father's favourite comedian actually. Yeah, he mm-hmm. was a he was a gem, wasn't he? Really gem, and he, very he well was told. fantastic. Very well told. Mm. Yeah, well, thank you. <laughs> but Mike hasn't got it yet. He has got it. He's just not bothered. He's, he's frankly not bothered. <laughs> Oh dear! Yes, fair enough. <laughs> and, and on that bombshell, <laughs> on that bombshell, <laughs> on that bombshell, if uh, if I could say on behalf of Henry Ramblings, uh, Jill Moss, Chris Lawrence, thank you very very much for giving up your time for us tonight and for making making it such an entertaining evening. Um, very much appreciated. And don't forget, if you like what you've heard or like what you've seen. Uh, don't forget to click like, share, tell your friends. Um, you can also register and get updates on a regular basis. We're out on Facebook, Spotify, YouTube, iTunes, any of your regular podcast uh, series or producers. And uh, get in touch. Let us know. If you want us to cover something, get in touch with us and we'll do our best to cover it. And on that note, Chris Lawrence and Jill Moss, if I could raise a glass to you, and say thank you very much indeed. May your dog go with you. <laughs> May your dog go with you. <laughs> thank Cheers. you. Thank you very much. It's Cheers. been very entertaining. Thank you. Cheers. Cut. <laughs> I've no idea how we limited it to to just over an hour. I, I could have gone on chatting to you both for, for days. It was a real pleasure. And thank you, you know, thank you for the opportunity because what we do is not very sexy, you know, so it's quite hard to find a, a, a fun element to what we do. But, um, yeah, you know, thank you for the opportunity. Well, no, honestly, the, the, the debt is all ours. Thank you so much for coming on. It's um, the, the work you do is is absolutely immeasurably yeah. important. Uh, so please carry on doing it. And uh, hopefully our show will, will, will give you a little bit more 
uh, advertising. Would yeah. you know yeah. what? I do think you're onto something, definitely, because, you know, the, the, the great thing about this kind of communication that you've got is it's not a lecture, it's not passive listening, it's a live conversation. And, yeah. you know, you're entertained as well as informed. And it's a great balance to read. Well, I'm a firm believer in that humour is, is cross-training for the mind. So totally. if you if you yeah. just hear dry facts, you, you yeah. may retain them, depending on what mind you have. But yeah. if there's some sort of humour or, or lightheartedness associated with that, you'll remember it better. It, it's Julian's jokes they listen for. It's nothing else. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I suspect it as much, Chris. It's good of you to say that, but... Uh, yeah, yeah so, someone says not. Uh, yeah, you're probably <laughs> right, Chris. Yeah, I, 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 <laughs> yeah, you're probably right there. 